the Apostle Paul assures us that we can place our confidence and hope in the gospel of his Son. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is not new. Lord, we thank you that you have spoke about Jesus throughout the pages of the Old Testament scriptures, and we see them fulfilled in the pages of the New Testament scriptures. Father, we thank you and praise you that, that your word is about your son Jesus, our Savior. May we encounter him today that we might have both confidence and hope in him. And we pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open to the book of Romans? We'll begin looking at verses 1 through 7, which is Paul's introduction to his epistle. Now the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David's, according to to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This Advent season, as Pastor Derek mentioned earlier, we'll be, we'll be looking at four passages in Paul's epistle to the Romans. And you'll find on page 11 an outline of these four passages and the themes and trust you to look at that as we prepare to celebrate this Advent season as we turn to the Scriptures each and every Sunday and Christmas Eve as well. Today's theme is the Gospel of God's Son, based on the text that we have just read out of Romans uh, chapter 1. This is, this is a very long sentence of the Apostle Paul in verses 1 through 7, but it's also his longest introduction of all of his epistles in the Bible, and he introduces a number of things. He introduces his apostleship, his authority as an apostle, his mission, his mission to bring the obedience of faith, not just to those in Rome, but to all the nations as we read. And he also identifies the recipients of this letter, the saints in Rome. But notice what he says, that this really is, is for everyone who is called to Christ Jesus but today our focus is on the introduction that is within the introduction. And the introduction within the introduction is Paul's introduction of the gospel itself, which is the theme of his entire letter. And Paul affirms three things about the gospel that are of the greatest importance for you and me. First of all, the gospel is a divine gospel. Secondly, the gospel is a promised gospel. And thirdly, the gospel is an incarnate gospel. I actually heard a story about a lady who took her first airplane flight as an older lady, and she had a fear of flying, and she was traveling to visit a family. And so when she arrived at her destination and the family met her, one of the family members asked her and said, 
how was your flight? And she responded, it was okay, but it was really tiring. And so the family member, somewhat puzzled, asked, thought maybe there was a flight delay or trouble making connections. And, and so he asked, why was it so tiring? And she responded, well, I just didn't trust that seat. And for the entire flight, I never put my full weight in it. Now, that decision, given the fact that her feet were planted firmly on the floor of the airplane, thus caused one to wonder about how she processed that. But it does point out the lack of confidence that we may have sometimes in putting our full confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. We affirm, we know that we are accepted before God solely on the merits of Jesus' pardoning grace and his imputed righteousness that we have received by faith. And yet, sometimes we think we've got to earn maybe a little bit more with God. And so we can live our Christian life trusting Jesus and trusting in our performance. Or perhaps we might, as we did this morning, confess our sin, as we should do. And we hear the assurance of pardon read, but then we find it difficult to fully put our confidence in Jesus who forgives our sin because we continue to be racked with guilt even over sins that we have committed. In other words, we know that Jesus is enough. Just like that lady knew intellectually, that seat was enough to hold her. But we can so easily fail to put our full confidence and hope in Him. And it's for this reason, I believe, that the Apostle Paul begins his epistle and introduces within his introduction these three pillars of the gospel. It has a divine origin, that it is promised from of old, and that it is incarnate. It is Jesus. First, the gospel has divine origins. It's, it's God's gospel. When I read a news story or I hear a news account, I often think, okay, what's the source? Knowing the source of something is important for receiving it as credible and authentic. Well, Paul does not mess around giving us the source of the gospel. The gospel here means good news. It is that good news story that, that Paul, for which Paul was set apart in verse 1 as an apostle. And he said this good news story has its origins in God himself. He is the source of the gospel. In fact, when you look at the grammar that the Apostle Paul uses here, he uses for this, this uh, phrase that we find, the gospel of God, that it is in a possessive form just to emphasize that this is God's gospel. He designed it. He originated it. He owns it. It is his. And in the passage that Bruce read this morning, I think we, we see the, the prophet pointed to the fact that this gospel message foretold way back in Isaiah's day is his, is, is his good news. J. 
just to look at the fact that in verse 10, we see the phrase, the will of the Lord. Let me read that verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for, for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Again, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Right out, of the, right out of the blocks, the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear that this good news for which he was commissioned to herald to the nations was not his gospel. In fact, it was not the gospel of any human source whatsoever, but it was sourced in eternity past in the Godhead. It is God's gospel. I want to just ask this question. Since the word gospel means good news, how is it good news? We can answer this in many ways. Let me just pose a couple. First of all, most if not all other religions other than Christianity do not worship a personal deity or deities. And largely, these religions are works-based and very, very burdensome. The practitioners of these false religions find no assurance, and they certainly find no peace. They never know if they've done enough, and they never know if they've done enough to prevent that deity or deities for punishing them. They don't know if they've done enough to merit favor. Those in these religions, these false religions, I believe, are stuck in one verse in the Bible. And that verse in the Bible is Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, where the Apostle Paul asks this question, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And all the other religions have no answer to that, but Christianity does. In fact, the Apostle Paul answers it in verse 25 of Romans chapter 7. Read it. The gospel answers this question because the gospel is good news for wretched sinners. There is assurance of salvation. There is peace with God by the all-sufficient grace of a personal, loving, redeeming Savior, Jesus. Sinners can rest confidently in hope in Him. And also the gospel is good news. For as Paul says later in this first chapter of Romans, in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then lastly, just as examples of why the gospel is good news. That the gospel is good news because Jesus' saving activity transforms all of life. And in fact, it has transformed human history. Paul emphasizes we can put our full confidence and our complete hope. We can put our full weight in the seat of Jesus because the gospel of God is just that, God's gospel. It is sourced in him. And then secondly, God's gospel was promised. It, it has been and is revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture in the Old Testament as well as the New, but promised in the Old Testament. 
I remember coming home to our apartment when we were in seminary. I came home for lunch, and I turned on the TV, and what did I see? Breaking news. Have you ever seen that, that banner, breaking news, on the, the news broadcast? This was January 28, 1986, and you may not know what happened January 28, 1986, but the breaking news over lunch that I saw was when the Challenger space shuttle blew up just 73 seconds after liftoff. Many of us remember that. Or maybe it was the breaking news of 9-11. Maybe it was the breaking news just more recently of the attack in Israel, the terrorist attack, or even finally the election of a House Speaker. That, that, was, that was breaking news as well. So, so we often see this or hear this breaking news when there's an event that is of such importance that we just need to know about it immediately. At the outset of Paul's letter to these saints in Rome, Paul not only makes it clear that the gospel is God's gospel, it is, he is the source of it, but he also says that the gospel is not breaking news. For the very basics of the gospel, the gospel message, Paul says, was promised beforehand through his prophets in his holy scriptures, verse 2. And we see the promise of the gospel in the Old Testament in these following scriptures. Genesis 3.15, at the very beginning of, the beginning stages of human history, right at the hills of the fall of man into sin, we read this. I will put, in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this the proto-gospel. And then we turn to the passage that Bruce read, this Servant song passage in Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through the end of 52, verse 12, which is a beautiful foretelling of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to, to save God's people in his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. None of us can read this servant song passage and wonder to whom it is pointing. It's Jesus. And then we might turn also to a very familiar passage, especially at Christmas time, again in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9 and verses 6 through 7. Remember Paul said in verse 3 of Romans 1 that Messiah who was descended from King David according to the flesh. Well, Isaiah chapter 9 we read, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his Name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Old Testament declares Christ Jesus. And his redeeming work. It was promised from of old. And the New Testament, we see this promise affirmed in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus. For example, 
the first chapter of Matthew and verse 1, we find this promise fulfilled in Jesus. For at the very beginning of Jesus' genealogy there in Matthew 1, we read this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we look to Luke's gospel with the Lord's own word about himself in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And the Lord Jesus said this, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus goes back to the Old Testament to show that these promises are fulfilled in him. God's gospel of his son is that good old-time gospel promised from the very beginning stages of human history, and we see promised throughout the pages of the entire Old Testament, and we see fulfilled in Jesus throughout the pages of the New Testament. The pages of Holy Scripture are the authoritative message of this good old gospel that Paul introduces in Romans chapter 1 and verses 1 through 7. We not only confidently rest our faith on a gospel that is divinely sourced, it is His, it is God's, but one that has been promised in the pages of God's authoritative word from the very beginning of the pages of Scripture, promised throughout, that has stood the test of time and will so even into eternity. And then thirdly, God's gospel is an incarnate gospel. Well, the great Oz turned out not to be so great. Now, some of you may not have seen the movie, The Wizard of Oz, but I remember the first time I saw that in black and white, and then it was put in color. And one of the scenes toward the end of the movie uh, portrays Dorothy and her merry band of other colleagues there at, at the Great Hall, there before powerful Oz with all the sound and the bells and the whistles and the smoke, and, and they were just absolutely terrified. And wasn't Dorothy's dog named Toto? Yeah. So Toto, as, as I recall, Toto ran and, and pulled the curtain back. And, and what Toto revealed was the great Oz not being so great, but actually being a little old man who was working all the levers. Lifting a veil or pulling back a curtain exposes or reveals the true nature of something. We find the Apostle Paul describing the resurrection in terms of lifting a veil or pulling back a curtain to show the one who broke forth in human history as a babe in Bethlehem, the the one who lived a life and, and suffered, the one who 
died on a cross on Golgotha and was buried in a tomb purchased by Joseph of Arimathea. It is, it is this one who is the sovereign son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Paul addresses the question, who is Jesus, in verses 3 through 4. And as we turn to verse 3, Paul, Paul declares that Jesus is uniquely and eternally God's Son. In fact, verse 3 says His Son, God's Son. And this affirms, of course, that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God who is fully God. He has a full divine nature. But Paul also affirms that Jesus is David's son. Look at verse 3. Who was a descendant or who was descended from David according to the flesh. So Paul answers this basic question, who is Jesus, by affirming that he's fully God and he is truly man, God incarnate. What is the incarnation? Turn to John 1, 1 through 14. I'll just read just part of verse 14 that I believe is such a beautiful and clear statement of the doctrine of the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. To incarnate means to enflesh. It this, this doctrine of the incarnation affirms that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, broke forth in human history at a particular point in time to add to, to take a human nature. He subjected himself to being born of woman, human birth. He subjected himself to be limited by living as a man with all the limitations that come with that. And from that point forward, the second person of the Trinity had a fully divine and a fully or truly human nature. The God-man is how we, we often describe Jesus. Our Lord took a nature, not by the normal means, but by the means of a miracle, the virgin birth. Jesus was conceived, conceived in his mother's womb, like all babies are, but yet without a human father. Mary remained a virgin. And the generation of this child then was supernatural, a miracle by the Holy Spirit. So Mary was puzzled over this when the angel in Luke chapter 1 verse 35 announces that she is going to give birth uh, to a child and remain a virgin. And she asked the angel that made this announcement, and the angel responds in this way, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, just like the Holy Spirit did at creation. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Thus, as Paul teaches in another epistle, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. So Paul affirms these things. Jesus is the God-man. But then he says something that could be confusing in verse 4. Paul states, And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. 
And when reading that, we might ask, wait, wait just a minute. How, how can Jesus be eternally his, that is, God's son, verse 3, and at a point in time be declared the son of God in verse 4? And the answer to this question rests on an understanding of Romans chapter 1, 1 verses 3 and 4 being parallel to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, it's always tricky in a sermon to try to establish a parallel, but I'm going to try and do this, and I want to help you understand and probably, hopefully, help me not to be misunderstood. So if, you, if you'll take your bulletins and turn to pages 5 and 6, you will find on page 5, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, printed there. And then on the opposite page, on page 6, you'll find our text today. And so as I seek to show the parallel here, I would encourage you to, to, to look at these two passages yourself in parallel there in uh, the bulletin. Or you can turn in your Bible and flip back, whichever is more convenient for you. And, th- and this is to help us understand what, is going, what Paul is saying in verse 4. So let's begin with the state of exaltation. We find two states of Christ in Philippians 2, the state of exaltation. We also see the state of humiliation. Then we'll see the state of exaltation again. So we'll begin with the state of exaltation. His son, that is Romans 1.3, parallels Philippians 1.6, his son, who though he, his son, was in the form of God. So here, both Paul in Romans and Paul in Philippians starts out with this this exalted state of Jesus in heaven. This is a statement of the deity of of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He's fully God. But we notice that in both texts, Romans 1 as well as Philippians 2, there's a movement from the exalted state downward to the state of humiliation. We see this in Romans 1-3 because here this, his Son, the eternal Son of God, who was descended from David according to the flesh. How did that happen? But that he condescended into the state of humiliation. Of course, this parallels Philippians 1, 7 through 8, which reads, Jesus, in his condescension into the state of humiliation, the the text reads in verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what Paul is saying here in Philippians is that Jesus voluntarily set aside, he emptied himself. He set aside his divine rights while retaining his full deity. And he humbled himself by taking, adding a human nature in the incarnation, being born of Mary and becoming a descendant of King David according to the flesh. And he did this to fulfill his messianic office as king and savior of God's people. And our our Lord was actively obedient. As we see Jesus, he lived a perfect life according to the law. He had perfect righteousness. He was sinless. And Paul reminds us that he was also passively obedient in Philippians 2. He was obedient by submitting to death even on a cross, a death that is foretold in Isaiah's prophecy that Bruce read earlier in our Old Testament reading. Thus, according to the flesh, 
our Lord's divine nature, his power, and his glory as the unique Son of God, as his Son was veiled in this state of humiliation. And then in verse 4, Paul refers to Jesus being declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This verse parallels the, the, the rest of our passage, Philippians 2, that describes our Lord's state of exaltation, which reads, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And just a few words here. The term spirit of holiness should be taken to refer to Jesus' deity and should not be taken to mean the power by which he was raised. He was certainly raised by the power of God, but this particular term is in reference to Jesus' exalted state. And we find a parallel with Romans chapter 1. Jesus was the son of David according to the flesh, pointing to his human nature and his state of humiliation. And he was raised from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, which is pointing to his resurrected state, his exalted state, his divine uh, nature. And the term power then must, must then refer to the fact that Paul is not referring to the power by, by which Jesus was raised, but actually referring to the fact that Jesus was revealed with all power. In fact, Paul's point is the resurrection declares Jesus is the Son of God with power. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, what we have been told in verse 3 is that when he came into this world, he did not come as the Son of God with power. No, he came as a helpless babe. He was, a, he was the Son of God, yes, but not Son of God with power. In other words, when he came as a babe, the power of the Son of God was veiled in the flesh, but what the apostle says is that in the resurrection, he is declared to be the Son of God with power. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones concludes by saying, it is there that we realize how powerful he is. At the resurrection, Paul tells us the, the curtain, it wasn't Toto running up, it was God himself pulling back the curtain, lifting the veil. That the the one who came and is known as the God-man, the, the babe in Bethlehem, the, the one obedient to death on a cross, Messiah, is Lord, is the sovereign son and king with power who is exalted in heaven and is present with his people by the Spirit even today. The lady in the opening illustration lack confidence in that airplane seat. May we not lack confidence in Jesus. Paul assures us in this gospel introduction, in this introduction of the gospel within the introduction to the epistle that we, we can and should put our full weight on Jesus to put our full faith in him and his gospel. For our confidence is founded on the gospel being divinely sourced. It's God's gospel. Our confidence is founded 
on the gospel being the good old gospel that was foretold even as far back as Genesis chapter 3 and has been proven throughout the pages of God's authoritative word, standing the test of time even into eternity, that the good old gospel is declared in the Holy Scriptures and we put our confidence in the reality that the gospel of God's Son is a gospel of Jesus with power. The exalted sovereign Son, our Savior, is in heaven. And one day, every knee will bow before him. By faith, may each one of us either, for the first time, put our confidence and hope in the gospel of God's Son or continue to be resolute to grow in placing our confidence and hope in the gospel of God's Son. For He is Messiah. He is our Lord. He is the Messianic King. He is the sovereign Son who has saved us and who is reigning with power. Paul assures us that we can place our full confidence and hope in the gospel of God's Son. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you that as we just reflect upon verse 16 of Romans 1, that the gospel is your power to save the Jew and the Gentile, that as has been preached from even this pulpit years ago, that the gospel has long arms to reach any and every sinner that is called to be in the kingdom of God. Father, give us great confidence. Build our hope, I pray, in the gospel of God's Son. We pray in His name. Amen.